Welcome to Nipton Talks. This is Dr. Ashley Roby, and I have a special guest with me here today. It's Dr. Alan Goodwin. He is a psychologist, an attorney, an author, and a public speaker. He has spent over two decades developing a form of mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, and he utilizes a goal-directed approach to help his clients grow and change. Dr. Goodwin has written a book entitled Saving Face Without Losing Your Mind, Bringing Mindfulness to Your Cosmetic Procedure, and he's here with me today to talk about that book. Dr. Goodwin, thanks for coming on. I'm so happy to be here talking with you, Dr. Roby. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Well, thank you. So my first question for you is, what was the reason why you decided to write this book? Well, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I can hear the sirens there. Yeah, of course. (laughs) If you had any question about where I live, Uh I'm on the ninth floor, Dr. Roby. Oh, wow. I sure can. The sirens. Sometimes I make meditation recordings in my office, and I get interrupted by that stuff. And <laughs> but we can talk about that because it's kind of funny. I mean, because the inclination in that moment is to swear and say, "I got to start again." You got to work through it. That's angry. life. Right. Exactly. And yeah. so, yeah. I mean, in a couple of the meditations, I kept them, and I said, "Okay, here's what's happening right now." All right. So you asked me about the impetus. So here. In Los Angeles, people think there's a lot more cosmetic work done here. I think you probably know. The truth is, it's really very common everywhere, but it is very visible here. And the pressure to present in a certain way is really pretty intense here. And so anyway, it came up a lot in therapy with people. I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but I'd wind up with a client who happened to mention that they were preparing for or recovering from or considering cosmetic procedure. And, you know, oftentimes you refer clients to really good books. It's called bibliotherapy. You refer them to self-help guides to help with the work that we're doing in session. And those just aren't out there on this subject. There are great ones written by plastic surgeons and, and by patients, but there aren't ones written by a psychologist. So that's why I wanted to write it. I wanted to address the issues that you know, we're talking about in therapy so that people have a tool. No, I think that sounds super helpful. And certainly from my background in training in plastic surgery, I don't think that that was an area, the psychology, the psychiatry of why people have plastic surgery and the things that are going on through their head. That's not part of a good focus of our training as plastic surgeons. It becomes an on-the-job training experience because you find yourself having to deal with all of these various pieces when you're taking care of patients. So bringing that to the forefront and and providing a resource for people that are considering plastic surgery to explore some of those concerns and considerations makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think so. And I've been curious as to why there weren't books written before by psychologists. And I don't know, of course, but I suspect it's because the idea of altering yourself in an elective procedure has been pathologized, has been judged, and it still is judged less, but there still is shame around it. There are a lot of people who don't want to talk openly about it if they've had procedures. So I think that's probably why, but I don't know why other therapists haven't taken it up. Well, I think you're right. The stigma of plastic surgery is very real. I also agree with your other comment in that people are becoming more accepting of the fact that 
uh, hey, a lot of people are having this done. You know, people talk about the things that they do online and promote, oh, I had this procedure or this filler or whatever. And so when other prospective patients or people see that, they get excited about it. And it just becomes more acceptable. So certainly in women, men are, you know, they're lagging a little bit behind as far as representing an equal percentage of plastic surgery patients. But who knows what the future will hold with regards to that. Yeah, you know, I was listening to your podcast from about a month ago about men's procedures. And I was really interested in the frequency that you cited, because the most recent data I saw, I just didn't believe it was like 92% that men are only 8%. And I thought there's no way that that's accurate. And I think you cited like in the teens. Yeah, I think it was 13 or something. It's been increasing. And I'm sure it depends upon who your source is, right? I mean, a statistic is a relative thing, depending on who's collecting the data. But Regardless of what number you want to take as accurate, I think most people would agree that that number is increasing. So as part of my practice, in addition to doing plastic surgery, a big part is anti-aging regenerative medicine. What I certainly appreciate is that surgery is very stressful on your body, but it's also really stressful on your mind and your emotions. And, you know, the healthier body is before surgery, like You have all your vitamins and minerals and your blood count's good and all those kinds of things that as surgeons we are very used to checking. The better optimized those parts are, the better you will heal. But there's also the part about the better you are from a psychological perspective, the better you will do postoperatively as well. And you talk about mindfulness and potentially using meditation as a tool to deal with preoperative and perioperative issues. How do you usually recommend patients start to employ those kinds of techniques, the meditation and mindfulness techniques? Yeah, it's a really important subject because if you've read the book, you'll see that I talk about how so often people will have a negative reaction to the idea of using meditation because it seems like it's just an opportunity to stop. And, you know, you have things like the Calm app and and that label just seems to reinforce the idea that you're just taking a break, you're stopping and you're settling down. And that's part of it. And that's one of the values of meditation if you practice it. But a lot of people don't feel calm when they meditate. They have all kinds of reactions. And so if they're going to use it, they really have to be convinced to sit with those reactions and recognize them not as failure, but as the opposite, as a core part, a fundamental part, an inherent aspect of the process. So that's the way I talk about it with them. So how do you start? The way that I encourage people to start with meditation is in minutes. You can do it any time, and it can begin with one minute. There's a meditation program that I've referred some clients to, and I refer fewer to it because they have people begin with like 20, 30, and 40-minute meditations, and it's just overwhelming. And I've had a number of clients back out of the program because of that. Just can't do it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you meditate regularly, it's still hard to sit for 30 or 40 minutes. So the idea in meditation that I talk about with clients is, really what it's about. You gave me a great opportunity by the lead-in. You talked about nutrition and general health. 
and the linkage between psychological health and physical health. Well, a great example is meditation helps with impulse control. That's really what we're working on when we're meditating. We're working on staying present instead of reacting to all of these thoughts and other impulses we have based on whatever we're sensing in the moment, a smell, something we hear, something we see. What we're trying to do when we're meditating is coexist, oftentimes with things that we wish we weren't having to coexist with. And you can do that in a minute. You can do that when you're transitioning. Some people come to the office after they've been fighting traffic and looking for parking. And we do what's called a transition meditation. Sometimes it's called an arrival meditation, which can be one to three minutes long. And it's just about honoring that I'm not there anymore. I'm here and I can be present right now. So that's one way to begin by giving people the idea that that's what meditation is. And then by encouraging them to do it even just for a minute. That makes a lot of sense to me. Having a psychiatric diagnosis or a psychological challenge, whether it's anxiety or depression or what have you, is really pretty common, probably represented more in the cosmetic realm of plastic surgery as compared to the general population, a higher percentage. Certainly, as we stress the body, you can expect to have flares in those psychological components as well. It's stressful in your body and it's going to stress your mind too. So having a tool or having practice the ability to refocus and avoid the tendency to overreact when something seems a little more challenging or a little more difficult would be really helpful for people. I have examples of patients that I've seen that in. If you don't have the ability to take pause and put things in perspective, your first inclination is to panic and get agitated and then make many phone calls and demand this and demand that. It can just really create this vicious cycle. And it tends to not be very helpful in a recovery period. I mean, fortunately, I'd say that's pretty rare, but it's not like it doesn't exist in plastic surgery. Having that capability and having that as a tool would be really great for people. For me, I don't routinely do a formal screening questionnaire for who is at higher risk for body dysmorphic disorder and who is at higher risk for a myriad of other potential psychological issues. A lot of those you can pick up on just through regular conversation. Some of the questionnaires would be more sensitive screening tools. But what has been your experience with regards to, um, because I know you have quite a few patients that are sent to you by other plastic surgeons. How do the patients tend to receive that referral? It varies. Some patients don't want to engage in the therapy and it doesn't bode well for the effectiveness of therapy if a patient feels like they're being required or forced into it. But oftentimes you can help them understand why the surgeon recommended it and then talk about what kind of work we can do. And it can help when a patient doesn't feel pathologized. A core part of the work that I do is empowerment focused. It's strengths based and it's solution focused. And um, when you talk with clients about it from that perspective and help them understand how that changes the work, sometimes they come around. But, you know, the truth is not always. And the people who are referred that you're referring to, mm -hmm. uh, the more difficult patients oftentimes are people who are overly reactive 
and tend to be intolerant and tend to be quick to judge themselves and other people. And so it can be challenging. And the truth is sometimes those people don't engage effectively in the therapy, but oftentimes they do. I would think it could be a difficult conversation for a surgeon to say, hey, well, physically, you might be a great candidate, but wow, what's going on upstairs that really needs to be addressed? Whereas that could very well be an accurate statement. I have a feeling that may not be taken as well as intended. So in one part in your book, you were talking about how for some patients, their compulsive urge to take action into their own hands can lead to them ignoring surgeon's instructions and a poor outcome. That really spoke to me because I have to say that doesn't happen infrequently. And one example I was thinking of was um, I had a patient who had a tummy tuck. She had a little spot on her belly button that was slower to heal, which isn't totally uncommon. I mean, for a tummy tuck, you've got an incision that goes all the way around the belly button and it goes deep along that belly button stalk. So you've reduced some of the blood supply to that structure. So in some cases, it can be impaired enough that it doesn't heal as well as other spots. So this, unfortunately, was the case for her. And so I remember seeing her, and I said, well, it actually looks okay. Just keep it covered with some ointment and put a little dressing on it. It just needs more time. Well, time wasn't something she felt like she was willing to accept, and so she... Instead, talk to her neighbor who said, well, what you know, I would do is just soak it in hydrogen peroxide. So she just would put hydrogen peroxide soaks on the belly button. So instead of healing, it just slowly, at full strength, hydrogen peroxide can be a bit caustic. So it just slowly resulted in the destruction of more and more tissue. And then by the next time I saw her, she had a fair amount of her belly button that was no longer viable. So I thought that was an interesting comment with regards to impulse control, and I think that was spot on with regards to surgery. Yeah, that's a great example and a scary example. This is why in effective therapy, what you try to do is look for linchpins. You know, I try to give people warning signs to look for, and one is a sense of urgency in general. But for cosmetic patients during the recovery period, At the end of my book, I have two weeks of meditations before and two weeks of meditations after, and you don't have to do them in that order, but they're scheduled that way. They're ordered that way because there are certain challenges that come before the procedure that tend to occur in people, and there are certain other ones that tend to occur afterward, and this sense of urgency and the fear that maybe I made a terrible mistake can get really intense afterward, Mm -hmm. especially... You can imagine, I'm sure you've seen it many times, the swelling can really mess with people's minds, especially if they had something like liposuction, which is, you know, that's really what it's about. But it can also affect appearance when people are having facial procedures, right? Yes, yeah. They're trouble trusting. And so I think of the example of someone wearing compression garments way too tightly Mm -hmm. after a lipo procedure because they just can't tolerate that feeling that they're still too big, they might also not hydrate themselves well because they feel like that's the problem. I just Mm -hmm. have to get rid of this water. Or people that will decide they need to lose, oh, I'm going to lose additional weight right now, like immediately post-op. I'm not going to eat so much when they need even more calories for healing. It's a, yeah, I mean, just example after example for sure. But isn't it interesting that the exercise of meditating 
which we would think of, you know, I wasn't raised with meditating and I had a bias, especially as a lawyer coming to it. I remember when I was first exposed to the idea of meditating, you just think, well, you're just stopping. I remember my bias was, well, it's okay to just stop if you can't handle it. But really then at some point you got to start getting to work. Well, in fact, what you're doing when you're meditating is you're noticing all these inclinations that you have and you're trying to sit with them, to see them without feeling the need to react to them. So in Western psychotherapy terms, we could say it's a stimulus response thing. There are stimuli in the environment. I smell things, I hear things, I see things. I feel like reacting immediately. Mm -hmm. We want to try and tone down the reactivity so that it's not reflexive and we want to make it more of a choice. And that's what you and I are talking about. If someone has a lipo procedure and they're freaking out because the swelling is causing them to look a certain way, there are other choices that they can make in that moment. And the therapy would really be directed at helping them to prepare themselves for that. Yes. Some of these findings can be seen objectively, even in EEGs, like those quantitative EEGs. I was talking to someone who performs those regularly, and she's like, oh, well, everyone is constantly on their phone, flipping through this, going to that. They just never pause. They're not sitting on their porch, looking at the sunset, thinking about things. They're on their phone, looking at the next app, a show, making a phone call, checking their email. There's never that period where you allow yourself a chance to kind of process all the information. You're just constantly bombarding your brain. And I thought the interesting part about that was that they even see quantitative EEGs changes due to this fact, which I think is fascinating, but kind of a side note. Yeah, they've done some cool studies of, of really experienced meditators, the Buddhist monks. And yeah, there's some really interesting findings. And I think that's the reason that they're getting a lot more funding for that research. And, you know, research is always a little bit slower. So the results are trickling in, but there really are a lot of positive outcomes with meditation for coping with a bunch of different challenges. Yeah, and obviously surgery just being one of a multitude of areas where you could apply this skill set. One thing I actually really enjoyed in your book was all of the examples, the various patients with their backstories and the things that concern them and what your approach was for their various problems. And I thought that was really helpful because even if that person wasn't representative of you, certainly there were probably aspects of you could identify with certain traits and characteristics. One patient that you had named George, his story was interesting because he came to you talking about doing liposuction as a kickstart for exercise. And I thought, well, okay, maybe that makes some sense. And then you listed his stats and I did a little calculation. I'm like, oh, man. So George is, well, he was 65 inches, so five foot five. Is that right? Yep. And he was 235 pounds. So that put him at a BMI of 38. That's pretty heavy. For me, and I know we're getting into technical stuff, but it definitely is something that comes up a lot in my practice. So I thought it would be worth bringing up because people think that liposuction does do a good job at helping with starting a weight loss program. But if your BMI is 38, you know, he's 100 pounds above his ideal weight. And so, yeah, if we suction away 10 pounds, or maybe it's more like seven once you get rid of the watery component, okay, well, that's something. But is your time and money better invested in 
focusing on the true crux of the issue, which is probably poor lifestyle choices as opposed to, you know, contouring. I didn't know if that was something that you came across with your patients regularly. Yeah, that's sure. That's all in the mix that we would talk about. And I think you're raising an issue that you probably read about. Um, I'm forgetting what the term is. You probably know. It's when there's extreme liposuction. Oh. Uh, and, Are you talking? It's harder to have done. Well, it's, there's that 360 lipo. I mean, who knows what extreme is, but like 360 lipo or full body lipo, or you talk about the 40 lipo a little bit in your book, too. There's another term for it other than those and other than extreme, but there was just a guy in the news who was from England who was a gay male who had a lot of weight that was removed in a liposuction procedure more than doctors in the U.S. would do. I forgot where he went to have it done. It wasn't done in England. Just maybe large um, volume liposuction. That might be the, I don't know. Yes. I, Large volume. Yeah, something like that. If I remember right, there are bleeding issues and all sorts of complications that can be life-threatening. So it's hard to find doctors who will do it. But the point is, he got all kinds of hate online, some support, but he also reported how he had experienced a lot of judgment in the gay community. And after the procedure, he had found himself being much more public and much more capable of putting himself out there, so to speak. And so it does raise complicated questions. And what role the therapist plays is really to help help people hold a mirror up to themselves and respectfully to weigh the options and to encourage second opinions from people like you. And, you know, those issues are thorny. Yeah. And a lot of these issues don't have right or wrong answers. Large volume liposuction does have higher risk, like you alluded to. If you're talking about, well, I really need to lose 100 pounds and I just lost seven, maybe that's amazing. But if it made the patient feel better and they had a good outcome, great. But what I tend to find more often is that I think people have in their minds that, okay, I'm going to have this surgery. I'm going to end up looking like a fitness model. And, and people will come in. Let's say they have George's physique. Then they'll pull up photos of the GQ magazine of guys on a beach wearing like a Speedo. And like, I like how this guy looks. I'm like, yeah, of course you like how this guy looks. He's a model. So I uh -huh. think some of it can be about setting expectations. And that is a challenge when in the back of their mind, they still really want to be the the GQ model look, which who doesn't? I mean, I get it, but you know, it can set yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, that's definitely one of the issues to look out for. And patients also often have trouble asking the right questions and they wind up disappointed because they feel like they should have gotten more information about what to expect in the recovery process and in terms of the outcome. This is when body dysmorphic disorder can be an issue or some level of negativity toward oneself, body image issues, whether it's body dysmorphic disorder or just a tendency to be hypercritical of yourself. You know, Groucho Marx line is the one that I talk about with clients. I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would admit me. Yeah. Problem is people who have depressive tendencies oftentimes value things much less once they attach them to themselves. 
whether it's an object or a part of their body. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways of helping someone understand why they're feeling this perpetual need to keep having procedures because, you know, the nose or whatever would look good on someone else. But the plastic surgeon might have done a great job creating a nose that really does fit on this person's face. But when the person looks in the mirror, they don't see the same nose that they wanted because it's on their face now and they're used to rejecting themselves or anything attaching to themselves. So that's where self-esteem can play a role. And if therapy is effective, you can help people take a step back from that and really try to understand how they ever got in the habit of treating themselves that way. Yeah. We tend to be most critical of ourselves from an appearance perspective and that things that people think that other people are seeing if from a critical perspective, they tend to not see like, oh, look at this terrible mole or how the tip of my nose goes slightly to this direction. I don't think people see other people as critically as that. When I'm walking down the street, for example, I don't look at people the same way that I am looking at people when I'm doing a facial analysis. I don't meet people and pick apart all of the things that I think are asymmetric or disproportionate or whatever. People that have body dysmorphic tendency or have that disorder can become really hyper-focused on these areas of minor imperfections. Yeah, and then we get into the therapeutic process, which really, if, if it's effective, gets us to the point of helping the client recognize for most of those people, it really isn't about their appearance. They're doing something different. It's just getting expressed in a focus on their appearance. And I think it's worth mentioning also that apart from the body dysmorphic issue, some people are changing something about themselves, not because they think other people reject it, but because they don't like that part of themselves. And sometimes that's not unhealthy, just the individual's preference. And I think that that actually can be good. There can be areas that, whether it's time or just life experiences, or you're born with that, that you can never really think, hey, I love this part of my body. If it were like this, it would be better. And the vast majority of times, if you have a reasonable goal and you talk to your surgeon and they think they can achieve what you want, and then you do the surgery, most of my patients are pretty satisfied and happy with their outcome. So there's certainly something in human nature where we tend to focus in on the more challenging cases because um, you're always incentivized to not have those patients, right? You don't want to have a scenario where you're you're doing your best from a surgical perspective and think the outcome is great only to hear from the patient that, hey, I don't like this at all and I'm not happy. I mean, that's not anyone's goal. So certainly it behooves me and other surgeons as well to feel like, okay, what I think I can deliver to this patient from a surgical perspective is an outcome that they would be satisfied with. And usually I think they're pretty good communication and you can deliver upon that successfully. But, you know, the outliers where you're just not meeting the mark that, that the patient wants, um, yeah, those are disappointing. And so if there's a way to avoid those scenarios, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and I think it helps for the physician to sort of look in their own mirror also because it's a double-edged sword sort of, you know, the science is advancing in amazing ways. I mean, what can be done now and with, you know, lesser downtime, easy recoveries. I mean, it really is 
pretty cool what people can achieve if they want to change their appearance in certain ways. So that turns the surgeon into this savior for the patient. And it can be intoxicating for the surgeon. And especially if you have someone come into your office who seems desperately to want a certain change. I think that's when surgeons can get into trouble, not recognizing that someone's going to be difficult to please. I think that sort of desperation is one of the red flags I talk with doctors about. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And a patient's behavior can change from before and after surgery. And I think that has to do with the stressors that they have endured since surgery Just like in an interview with someone, you try to present yourself well. And many times with an initial consultation, I think a lot of people try to do that. And I'm not saying it's bad, but some things that could be red flags, you can hide for a half hour or so while you're talking to someone and presenting to them what your goals are. But once you've had a chance to operate on someone, you've stressed them, those patients are more likely to subsequently express challenging behavior. Um, again, I feel like this is a minority of people, but you're not going to be able to weed out one that has inappropriate or unrealistic expectations, even with the best intentions. Yeah. One of the things that we try to do in the therapy is normalize some of those reactions. It just is intuitive. If we talk about it, it'll make sense. You don't have to be a psychologist that when someone is dealing with uncertainty, about something that's important to them. And that's what happens after a cosmetic procedure. Emotions kick in. When emotions kick in, we tend to not make the best decisions. And so helping someone to recognize that and prepare for it. And of course, I know you're really familiar with the added problem when you feel pain, when you feel any kind of discomfort, anything psychological is more difficult to manage. Absolutely, yes. I think that's definitely the case. Post-operative, you have the unknown, right? So you have swelling, you have pain, you can be mentally clouded from the pain medications. You're seeing things that, hey, you're not a surgeon, you don't really know what it's supposed to look like immediately post-operatively. So it can be a lot for some patients to deal with. And I certainly understand that, and I'm happy to help people get through it. Some people seem to be very accepting of little bumps in the road or little deviations from what they anticipate. And some people struggle with it more. And there's lots of different personalities out there. And I don't find that particularly surprising. Some people need more hand-holding postoperatively than other people. And that is probably just different skill sets, different patient histories, but different kinds of surgeries. I think you're probably right. Things like facelifts, et cetera, where it's on your face. And every time they walk by a mirror, they're looking at that area. It can be more provoking for concern than areas that you have covered up for the vast majority of the day. So all those things play a role. Yeah. And some things the doctor has limited control over, like whether the patient feels empowered to really ask the questions that they have in mind. And so one of the things that I know is happening that I think is a really great development is there are these online support groups that are forming among patients who have had or are planning to have a certain procedure. And so they can talk amongst themselves about at a certain point in the recovery, this is what was happening. And there's always the risk that patients are going to give some wrong information But a lot of the time what's happening that I'm hearing from patients is they're having an opportunity to learn 
about some complications that they can then, before the surgery, bring to their surgeon and ask about. Those are actually a pretty helpful resource. And like you said, it's not that like everything that's put out there is 100% accurate, but it does get people to start thinking about those kinds of things. And the more of those challenges that you can anticipate and think about, whether it's bruising or a clot issue or challenge standing up or whatever, the better you will be prepared for your surgery. So I think that those resources are great. I mean, some of them are better than others, and it depends on who happens to be answering your questions. But it's classically like a group forum. I know there's Facebook pages that will talk about various surgical procedures. Real self, people will post lots of preoperative or postoperative questions. They'll include photos. They'll give you some of their backstory. And real self is answered by board-certified surgeons. So you get opinions from other surgeons. You'll see people posting postoperative photos and like, was this normal or is this okay? Which is kind of interesting that they're not just asking their surgeon. You would think they would just go straight to there. But sometimes people want second opinions and they want reassurance from more than one person. So there is a lot of the information out there. And some of it's really great. Some of it's probably dicey. But in general, I think it's been beneficial for people just to experience some of the perioperative experiences of other people. It seems like hearing what other people's reactions are, I would think it'd be good for physicians to see that too. Like what questions they'll come up with. It is actually interesting. And from my perspective, and I have done a fair amount of real stuff. Someone will post a question and you'll see five different answers from five different surgeons. And the answers will be totally different. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are really struggling with anxiety. And the reason that I wrote the book, just to put a finer point on it, is that a lot of people expect therapy to be a sort of unfocused process. And it really can be very solution-focused and very much directed at coping with this sense of uncertainty and the fear that I don't know that I'm going to be able to tolerate it if I don't have just the right outcome. How about this? Let's say you're someone considering plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery. How do you know that you are someone that should seek out therapy? Yeah. Well, one of the questionnaires that I have in the book is a questionnaire that focuses on people really tending to be overly reactive, overly demanding, needing things to be a particular way. So kind of compulsive about things having to be just right. The questionnaires are intended to help people assess. Like there's another one, um, a mirror test, which is about assessing the likelihood that you may have trouble monitoring your healing. A lot of people really don't feel like they can do that well. And it's very important that they do it well for reasons that you could describe better than I. But doctors are always telling their patients, you know, I need to hear how things are going, because if there's an infection or whatever, if something's gone wrong, they want to address it. So helping the patient to recognize their tendencies. When things go wrong, how do you tend to react? When you don't know how things are going to turn out, how do you tend to deal with that? I don't tell people not to have surgery. I tell them that there are ways that we can help you prepare so that you're going to cope better. So if we can find out what your tendencies are when you're stressed, we can head that off. We can help you to become more resilient. There really are methods for that. 
Yeah, I thought the mirror test sounded like a really good idea because I try to encourage my patients to really be their own best advocate. I mean, obviously, you're going to know first if something seems awry on your own body. But there's definitely a subgroup of patients that don't want to look. They don't want to see. They're scared or whatever. They're not sure. And so they'll do nothing. For example, when I do a breast lift, a mastopexy, one of the things that I feel like it's really important for the patient to keep their eye on is the nipple and areola. Like, is that tissue, we just rearrange it. We put it up higher. Does it still look okay? Does the blood supply still look good? That's an important thing. And we'll talk about it preoperatively, how there's a small chance that it could be inadequate and that tissue could heal poorly or they could even lose some of that tissue. So you need to make sure it has good color. And I can't tell you how many times I'll call someone the next day like, hey, how's, how's it looking? Oh, I haven't looked. What do you mean you haven't looked? Oh, I haven't. I'm too scared to look. So they're too scared to peek at the area, even though they've been told that it's really important to monitor that so that if something were to go awry, potentially an intervention could be done. So that mirror test could be really helpful because if you're able to identify those people beforehand, you're saying, hey, you know what? Maybe you need to have your significant other or your friend come over and take a look at the surgical site in a handful of hours just to eyeball it for you because we've discovered that that just may be something you're not comfortable or you wouldn't excel at. Yeah, especially if the doctor's office provides nurses that work with that physician all the time on this procedure, that can be really reassuring. Then the person knows that this is someone who knows what they're looking at. Some patients have talked with me about feeling like they really don't know. They read what the doctor told them to look for, but they're really anxious and not sure if, you know, the suture looks quite right. And so sometimes it's good to have someone, like I said, from the doctor's office or maybe a nurse or a nurse's aide who can help you at your house. And sometimes it's not a friend or a relative that does it because you won't feel reassured by that. It just depends on the person. Yeah, I regularly will have patients send emails to my assistant like, hey, look at this or look at that. Um, what do you think about this? Can you have the doctor look at this? And I'm totally fine with that. I would much rather have them send me something that looks totally fine as opposed to the alternative where they're ignoring something that looks really concerning. So whether it's them reaching out to my office or they have a nurse at home or someone in the medical field or someone who's just feels comfortable looking at those kinds of things, I think that can be a really important resource for people. It can be reassuring. Yeah, great. So you had a patient, let's see, her name is Gwen. You were talking about how not personalizing the struggles of other people was important. And I thought that was a really great commentary and certainly can be extrapolated well beyond the realm of plastic surgery. For example, for me, and probably for you too, a lot of my patients are referrals from other patients, but a certain percentage come from the internet, right? Like reviews, like, oh, Dr. Roby's great. Dr. Goodwin's great, right? People will put their experience working with you and it can be a really great asset for other prospective clients that don't happen to have friends that have already seen you. But one of the downsides for someone in the medical profession is that it's a one-way commentary. Um, like it can be someone who's like you've never even seen. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot. But I've had people give me bad reviews that I've never even met. But you really can't from a health information, the HIPAA Act, you can't really make that a two-way conversation that people can appreciate. That can be challenging to see those 
of things out there, and they seem like they're directly aimed at you, but oftentimes what you're seeing, I suspect, is someone who's struggling with many things, and they're just lashing out at you. I just thought that your analysis of the patient Gwen and her experience was really spot on. Well, thanks. It's such an important issue. And it is in therapy, it is kind of hard sometimes to help a client see it. Because, you know, if someone says your nose looks ugly, how do you not take that personal? It's your nose they're talking about. They're directing it at you. The idea is when someone says something like that to you, they're really giving you two pieces of information. One piece of information is that they have an opinion about the way your nose looks. <laughs> the second piece of information is that they're choosing to tell you. And the choice to tell you is about engaging with you in a particular way. And that's about some agenda that they have. So another way of just tweaking this description a little bit is to add it's revealing a limitation in them. They are struggling with something. So, for example, a blind person is struggling with seeing. If they bump into you, you don't take it personally. You don't take it personally because it's obvious to you that your injury, getting bumped into, was directly caused by their struggle. It mm. emerged from their struggle. That's what we mean by not personalizing. It's not that it didn't hurt your foot when they stepped on it. It's that they didn't step on your foot because it was your foot. They stepped on your foot because they couldn't see. I try, try to help people think about the disabilities that people are operating under, disabilities defined broadly that may be affecting how they're behaving toward you. Yeah. And, well, fortunately or unfortunately, most of people's, those kinds of disabilities aren't going to be as apparent as a blind person, right? Usually it's just going to be something so much more subtle and something that you may never be privy to know the details as to why they're acting that way. But to internalize it and to feel bad about yourself for that reason doesn't help you. Exactly. And so that it, that's what the therapy then becomes about. You know, the person wasn't blind. They were directing it at me. Mm -hmm. So then the conversation shifts a little bit to, so let's talk about your vulnerability that leads you to accept responsibility for something. You know, that you must have done something wrong. There is something inside us that goes to that. When someone treats us badly, there's a core reflexive thing that goes on that we really have to work at not doing because it's just natural that you would think, what have I done sure. to deserve that? It's human nature. I want to take the responsibility for my part in this role. And there may not always be something. Maybe you did nothing wrong. But it makes sense that you're second guessing. I certainly think about that when I have someone who is like, oh, I'm, I'm dissatisfied with this thing. And I think to myself, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? And maybe sometimes there is something, but sometimes there's not. And this is where compassion is a really powerful tool. Compassion is one of those tools that's associated with mindfulness and meditation and Eastern ideas. And a lot of the time people think of it as, you know, they sort of poo-poo it, compassion. That's just about being nice. I'm not going to get anywhere in life if I'm just nice. And I'm nice anyway. There's a lot of resistance that people can have to the idea of compassion. But this is where it's really a powerful an example of where it's really a, can be a powerful tool. Because compassion, if you define it, the way that I define it is seeing a person within the context of their struggle. It's about recognizing that that person is limited right now. And even if you did do something wrong, one way of, of coping with that is, did you deserve 
the intensity of the reaction that you got. That's about them. That's about their struggle. Even if you failed at something, we all fail. And so we're entitled to forgiveness and we're entitled to compassion. Unfortunately, people can't always direct it at us because of their own limitations. So this isn't so complicated. A lot of the stuff we do in psychotherapy really isn't so complicated, but it is difficult to implement. And you just have to keep plugging away at it. And when you get the core tools, they really do work. So the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy is that the way we think and feel and behave, those things bring the other things into existence. So the healthier thoughts, the better your feelings, the more appropriate your behaviors, like those will all feed off of each other. Is that the gist of it? Yep. The core of cognitive behavioral therapy, but really this is active in any therapy. We just make it explicit in cognitive behavioral therapy is that there's a causal relationship, not just a correlational relationship. They're really causing each other. The way that you think, in other words, the way you interpret your experiences in life and the way that you feel and the way that you behave are all interacting with one another in a causal way. And in the book, I have that triangular relationship between those three. But really, in my office, I have on a TikTok video, I have a different model, which is probably more accurate, but it's not as elegant, which involves sensations. Because we know that when a person is feeling physically a certain way, like pain or butterflies in their stomach, or lots of different physical sensations, it does tend to have a direct effect on the way that they think, the way that they're feeling emotionally, and then the way that they behave. And so all four of those are what we try to address in therapy and help the client get in the habit of noticing. And that really is what we mean by mindfulness. Mindfulness is just about observing, observing all those aspects of yourself to try and understand why you're behaving and thinking and feeling in the ways that you are. Oh, that makes sense. The more you can be mindful of what your thoughts are, how you're reacting to situations, you can direct yourself towards better outcomes. And so having that ability to be more mindful would be really good. Not just potential plastic surgery patients are good candidates for this approach. I think a lot of people in general could use more mindfulness. So thanks, Dr. Gowen, for coming on to the podcast and sharing your book and thoughts with us. It's been really, really insightful. Thanks, Dr. Roby. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you again. It's really fun talking with you. Yeah, same. All right. Well, have a good evening, and we'll talk later. Thanks a lot. You too. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.